Is the cedar fever bugging you guys as well? My throat is, that's why I've got this, the lemon water there. If I pause to take a drink, it's so that I can keep talking. I'm going to read a passage for you this morning. Let me actually pray for us first. Then I'll read and we'll go right into it. Heavenly Father, you gave Jesus uh, to us, but the world actually missed him. Almost everybody in it, the most amazing gift in the world, in the universe, and yet we still can't see it unless you open our eyes. And so that's what I ask you to do today. I pray that, Father, you would send the Spirit the way you sent Jesus. Send the Spirit now and open our ears, open our eyes to see Jesus and to love you. Would you please speak to us through your word? In your name we pray. Amen. Okay. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 4. Or I think you can look up on the screen. Here's what I want to do. The the passage is actually verses 1 through 30, but I'm going to start in verse 4, and I'm only going to go through verse 26. But I want to show you something out of this first verse before we start. Okay? Jesus, and this is really interesting. I didn't see this for years and years and years. Jesus, or John, as he's recording the story, actually makes a point of telling us that the Pharisees... Are part of the, they're part of the story here. They're the very first verse. If you look at that, it says this, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, and you go, that's a mouthful. What is going on there? The Pharisees were very, very religious. They take everything the Bible says very seriously, and they would have had serious reservations about this woman that we're going to read about in just a second, the woman at the well. And for some reason, John almost seems to be showing Jesus as waiting for the Pharisees to look at him. So when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, in other words, every eye is finally, John the Baptist has been doing a, he's baptizing, he's kind of the thing. And Jesus comes along and he starts baptizing, his disciples do. And pretty soon there's more people coming to Jesus than to John. And all of the religious leaders are finally looking at Jesus. And Jesus goes, everybody watching me? Everybody watching me? You watching? And now the story starts. And that's going to be really, really significant. I think Jesus is saying, watch this, you religious folks. How I deal with the poor and the broken. And so I'm going to pick it up in verse 4. And read through 26. Now Jesus had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour. That's noon. High noon. Now a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Mm -mm. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, 
Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said, I love this line, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, let's start with a question. What's so great about Jesus? Think about that. I mean, it's Christmas. We're celebrating his birth. He's supposedly God's gift to us. What's so great about Jesus? This passage actually shows us than just better than just about any other passage I can think of. What makes Christianity so unique? You see, the way that Jesus interacts here with this woman is absolutely amazing. We know that she's not particularly religious. She's a Samaritan. She's not Jewish. But she does seem to believe in God. But her personal life is a mess. One failed relationship after another. She's been married five times. And the guy she's with now isn't her husband. That personal mess has actually impacted her socially. Scholars look at this passage and they go, isn't this odd? It's high noon and there's nobody else at the well. Why is that? Well, the answer is because it's hot in the Middle East. And so the time when everybody goes to the well, it's in the cool of the mornings or the cool of the evenings. The people who went to the well at noon were generally social outcasts. So it's very likely that this woman, even in her Samaritan community, which is not religious, not, not religious like the Jews were, even there she's an outcast. They're using the shame of her failures to control her, to look down on her, to put her off. This is somebody, I think, that everybody has written off, everyone, Jews and Samaritans, and yet Jesus engages her. This passage doesn't just show us God's attitude toward broken, hurting people. This passage shows us the gospel's capacity for transformation because this encounter with Jesus is going to change her. Right at the very end, I didn't read this part, she drops her bucket, very symbolic, runs back into town and says, come see the man who told me everything I've ever done. And it doesn't just change her life, it changes the entire town. 
Something really significant happens here because of the way Jesus interacts with her. Something about Jesus is really, really good for her and for those people. And that's what we want to look for today. So four things. I want to show you Jesus' attitude towards the woman at the well. I want to show you Jesus' diagnosis of her problem. I want to show you his prescription for her cure. And I want to explain to you how the medicine actually works. So his attitude, his diagnosis, his prescription, medicine. Let's look at each each one of those in turn. What is Jesus' attitude towards the woman at the well? How does he feel about her? And this is fairly easy to see. You look in this passage... And most of you, even if you're not very uh, you know, much of a church person, you probably know, well, Jesus is for sinners. Um, Mark chapter 2, verses 17, another very famous verse. Jesus is actually being critiqued for who he hangs out with. And he says, listen, those who are well have no need of a physician, but it's those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. So Jesus sees himself as a spiritual doctor. He's here to help the spiritual sick, so Jesus is for sinners, and therefore God must be for sinners too. Point one, done. Well, not quite. See, there's a problem. Most of us think that the way God is for sinners is actually, it's kind of the way a car salesman is for buyers, okay? Is a car salesman for, has anybody bought a car? I hate it. All right, you go into the car lot, and you're like, the, what does the guy say? Can I help you? Okay, and <laughs> is he for you? Yeah, but what's he really for? He's for his commissions. In other words, what a car salesman does is he looks at every single person, and he's, he's you got bad credit? We can take care of that. You need a loan? We can take care of that. But what he's really trying to turn you into, he's evaluating based on your capacity to be somebody who makes payments on a car. That's the way he's for you. And I think a lot of us actually look at God that way. You see, we know that he's for sinners, but we think that God kind of looks at sin almost as like bad credit. So you got the woman at the well. She's a mess. She's had five failed marriages. She's shacking up with the guy right now. The Bible talks about that. She's got some serious bad credit. And what we think that God wants to do with people like that is to say, remember the Pharisees? Hey, what you really need to do is clean yourself up. Grace is kind of a second chance. And then go start making payments the way the religious people do. You need to be really good. You need to go to church. You need to do all those things. That's how we think about God oftentimes. But that's not how God is for us. Think about it. If you're that woman, if that was the good news of the gospel, is that if you clean yourself up enough, you can eventually make payments. Dude, that's depressing. And most of us, I think, intuitively know that if, if it's up to us to try to clean ourselves up, so we can make payments to God and kind of earn his approval or his favor, we're probably in trouble. Fortunately, Jesus shatters that idea with the woman at the well. God is for you in ways you could never imagine. Look at verse 4. Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Here's the interesting thing. He didn't actually. Samaria is kind of right in uh, the middle of 
of ancient Israel. And the, there was part of Israel that was to the north of it, part of it was to the south of it. And what would happen is the Jews so disliked the Samaritans. It's almost like an ethnic thing. Um, they hated them. They wouldn't even go close to them. And Jews, instead, they would go out of their way and go around it. So he didn't, ha- that was the typical thing. He didn't have to pass through. So if John tells us that he had to, maybe there's another reason. Maybe Jesus is actually on a mission to say, hey, these people matter too. This woman matters. Look at verse 6. Jesus gets weary. He stops at a well. It's the sixth hour. It's noon. There's a woman, one woman, and he asks her for a drink. And you go, no big deal. No, it's a huge deal deal. Those Pharisees over here, the religious people, if they would have seen this, they would have been shocked. Okay? Let me see if I can explain to you why. Let me give you an example. Let's say I said, hey, man says to a woman, walks up, says to a woman, can I have a ride? No big deal, right? A guy needs a ride. Okay. But what if I tell you it's in Vegas? It's at midnight. It's downtown. The woman's standing on a street corner. The guy walks up and has a collar. And he says, hey, can you give me a ride? Is that a big deal? Oh, yeah. Now, what's the difference between all I've done is I've given you some context. And what I want to get at here is Jesus, for the, for the, for the religious people in Jesus' day, him simply talking to her. That right there, they said that makes him unclean. He can't go into the temple until he's gone through a cleansing ceremony. So they thought simply talking to a woman like this, period, would have tarnished him. But what Jesus says to her, what I want to actually try to show you, I think it's more like the second example that I just gave you. Jesus is doing something here that's shocking, very, very provocative. What I want to try to do is I want to reread the dialogue for you. Verses 7 through, oh, probably 15. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to paraphrase it, and here's why. If you look at this passage, for years I looked at this, and it, it's, um, you got to give the translators a break here. Translators have a hard job. And what the translators are trying to tell you is, okay, here's literally what got said. But there's clues in this passage. If you read it just literally flat, the way I read it when I was reading the text. It doesn't make much sense. In other words, Jesus comes up and says, hey, can I have a drink? And before you know it, this woman wants to become a Christian and follow him. And you go, how did that happen? Okay, it it just seems kind of like, in other words, if you take this and say, I'm going to go share my faith and you try the same thing, you know, can I have a drink? Your conversation is probably not going to unfold this way. All right, something, I think something's going on. And there's actually a clue in the text. There's several places where the woman says, sir, okay? And in our own language, let's, let's put it this way. As I thought about this, okay, somebody can call me Mr. Kreider, you know, and that sounds very flat and very formal. Or somebody could be, you know, kind of angry with it. Hey, mister. Or somebody become, you know, Marilyn sometimes is like, hey, mister. Um, <laughs> my, my point is, it does happen. My point is, that one word, okay, man, that was a bad example. Everybody's paying attention now. 
we're talking about the woman in the well. You guys got to get used to it. D- doesn't Tom ever talk about sex in church? It's in the Bible. Okay. Listen, here's my point. That one word, on one end of the spectrum, it's got a very formal meaning. Mr. Same thing with sir. Okay, but that word sir in, in uh, Greek can also be used much like the word mister. And if you start looking, there's clues in this passage that something is going on. There's a way, I think, that Jesus and this woman are talking. And I want to try to read it for you. And you don't have to read it this way, but I want you to think about what if this is going on, and I'm going to try to tell you what I think it means. Let me paraphrase here. Verse 7, Jesus says, he walks up to this well. He probably recognizes, we know that he knows a lot about her already. Okay? He sees this woman. He already knows her history. Okay? Jesus walks up and says, or she walks up as he's sitting there, and Jesus goes, hey, thirsty and the woman like stops dead in her tracks she could probably tell that she knows he's a jew she probably knows from the fact that his disciples just went into town that he's a religious leader or something and basically she says this you talking to me do you know who you're talking to jesus says in verse 10 If you knew who you were talking to, you'd be asking me for a drink, and I'd give you living water. And the woman does a double take. Verse 11, you don't have a bucket, but she does. And Jesus says, well, there's a problem with your water in verse 13. It leaves you thirsty, but mine doesn't. Mine will satisfy you forever. Do you hear the the innuendo I'm putting on this? I think it actually holds up when you look at this carefully. And Jesus says, or the woman responds in verse 15. You can either read it flat, sir, give me this water. Or you can read it, okay, mister, let's see it. Show me. You're making some big, bold claims here. Let's, like I get, I pick, I'm picking up what you're laying down. Now listen, why am I doing this? I'm reading with lots of innuendo. You don't have to read it this way. But what if Jesus is speaking this way? What would that show you? And I, I want to be really clear here. I don't think he's hitting on this woman. What's he doing then? I think Jesus is meeting her where she's at. She has built her entire life on giving sex to get something, whether it's relationship or security or whatever it is. When you do that, it starts to warp you. And I think this is the only language that she speaks. I think Jesus is meeting meeting her where she's at and speaking the only way she is capable of hearing. And if that's the case, it says something really powerful about Jesus. He's not just interested in her for her potential to become like the Pharisees. He's actually interested in her, sinful woman that she is. He came here to meet her, to have this conversation. He's interested in her, where she's at, for who she is. And if Jesus feels that way about her, God feels that way about her. So here's a question. What about you? What's your attitude towards sinners, towards people like the woman. Do you just want them to become Pharisees? Okay, here's a question. Another question. What about those of you who maybe feel like this woman? 
feel like a sinner deep down. Maybe not everybody knows about it, but on the inside, you're really wrestling. If people knew what I'm really like, what would they think about me? Listen, I have met so many people who basically go through life thinking that God is angry or disgusted with them. But if God can be for somebody like her, surely he can be for somebody like you, just as you are. He can be for somebody like me. That is the essence of the gospel. So what's the first, what's Jesus' attitude? He is for this woman right where she is. Okay? Second thing, how does Jesus diagnose her problem? What does he, when he looks at her, what's her sickness? The first 14 verses, basically, I think you see Jesus seeking and engaging her. And I think she reads it as, hey, here's an interested guy. He's speaking my language. I think when she hits verse 15, she kind of bites and goes, okay, show me. Okay, mister, give me this water. And verse 16 is really interesting because Jesus responds and says, go get your husband. Now listen, this is where you should go, what? And a lot of scholars wrestle with, they're like, why did Jesus change the subject? I don't think he did. He's been talking about thirst up in verse 13, and then he jumps to relationships in verse 15. Go get your man. I don't think he's changing the subject. I think he's connecting the dots. I think Jesus is saying, listen, I just wanted to make a point. I wanted to engage you. The way you are coming to this well day after day to draw water because you drink it, but you get thirsty again. That is a picture of the way you are approaching relationships, man after man after man, and you're still thirsty. I know you're thirsty because you've been married five times and the guy you're with now is not your husband. I know it's not satisfying you because you've been married five times and the guy you're with now is not your husband and you just bit, you just showed interest in me engaging you in this way. You're still on the, on the look for somebody else, an upgrade. Jesus, what is he doing here? I think Jesus is spiritually undressing her. In other words, he's, he's revealing what's really on the inside her problem isn't primarily sex, her sexual behavior. Her problem primarily, it's much deeper than that. It's thirst. She's deeply, deeply thirsty for something, and she's going to the well of sex with guys to try to get it. And Jesus, like Pharisees, look at behavior. Jesus goes deeper. Let me give you three points of application on this. Three, when you start to look at sin and brokenness the way Jesus does. Here's three things that it'll do for you. First of all, you will start to go deeper, to look deeper. Not just behavior, but the thirst behind the behavior. Listen, why do young women give themselves sexually? Often in places they know better, they know it's not a good idea. Usually it's to get something in return. They want to feel loved. They want to feel wanted. They want to have security. Whatever it is, this woman at the well is so thirsty, she's been willing to do all sorts of things to get it. And listen, there's lots of ways that you can dip the bucket of your soul, not just in sex, you can do it for your job. You see what I'm saying? Are you going to the well of your work and your competence to go, this is what makes my life meaningful and worthwhile. I know I'm okay because I've got a good job or I make lots of money or I've got kids or I'm in control of my situation. Whatever you, where are you dipping the bucket of your soul? 
when you start to think this way, how Jesus thinks about sin, it'll cause you to look deeper. That's the first point. Here's the second thing. It will also make you much more compassionate with people who struggle. Let me give you an example. Marilyn works at Starbucks. Um, she's got a friend that she knows through that capacity who's gay, okay? And if any of you have spent much time, you know, around Christianity or especially in the Bible, you know that the scriptures talk about, okay, homosexual behavior. So that's bad. It's very easy for religious people who take the Bible seriously, like the Pharisees did, to look, okay, at somebody who's a homosexual and just go, you are bad, 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 bad. You just need to change. The other day, Marilyn, I'll call this guy Jonathan. Marilyn was actually talking with Jonathan's partner. And Jonathan said, have you ever heard, or I'm sorry, the partner actually said, have you ever heard Jonathan's story, what, what his mom was like? She goes, no, tell me. As Jonathan was growing up, he's gay. His mom, over and over and over again, and I'm quoting here, said, you are useless, you are worthless, I wish you'd just shoot yourself. Now listen. Can you see how something like that might mess you up? How it might cause you to seek love wherever you can find it? I'm not saying that our sexuality, like I'm not saying, I'm not saying this, this isn't sin. But what I'm getting at is we've got to look, Jesus looks deeper and he is compassionate with people. He wants to cure what's wrong at the heart. Okay, so we should look deeper. We should be incredibly compassionate because we actually realize that we're very similar. At the, at the core, all of us are very, very similar. Here's the, the third thing. It gives you a much more expansive view of sin. And here's what I mean by this. It's a broader view. See, most people, if you look at sin simply as bad behavior, like sex outside of marriage or homosexuality, if you look at sin as bad behavior, um, you're going to go, here's the, here's the sinners, and then everybody else is okay. Jesus looks at it as an underlying insecurity, a hunger or a thirst. And if the sin is really the attempt to quench that thirst in wrong ways. And that definition doesn't just undress her, it undresses the Pharisees too. You see, on the outside, the Pharisees, they were good, they were religious, they were moral, but Jesus actually says on the inside they were whitewashed tombs. They were dead. In other words, they were thirsty. They were just as desperate for love and approval as this woman was, but instead of getting it by pursuing men, they were pursuing it by trying to keep all the rules. I'm going to be so good that God has to love me. And Jesus goes, same thirst, two different expressions. Do you see how that is an expansive, us more because we're religious or spiritual or good and less when we're not. The love of God works differently. That's how Jesus diagnoses her problem. He says, there is an underlying thirst here, and it is killing you. So, third point, what's his prescription? What does he actually offer her? This is really significant. He doesn't say that her behavior is no big deal. He actually says you're dying of this. You're dying of thirst. It's killing you. It's not working. But he also doesn't point to the religious folks over here and say, what you need to do is go be like them. Because that's death too. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, go call your husband and come here. He's not just exposing her relational problems. 
when he said, why does he say, go call your husband and come here? I think literally you could translate this, go get your man and bring him back here. And I think the reason Jesus is saying this is he's saying, I want you to compare him to me. In other words, what you're looking for in men, you want to be loved. You want to be secure. You want to matter. You want somebody who's never going to leave you, never forsake you. Jesus goes, I'm the person that will satisfy that thirst. And what that means, this is so significant. What it means is that he's offering her himself, not morality, not a different sexual ethic. Now, it's the, as he gets to know her, it's going to change her in those areas. But he's going to the heart and to the core I've heard so many people say the purpose of religion or the purpose of the Bible is to teach us how to be good moral people, how to live a good life. That's not it. The Bible does give us moral instruction about how to live, but that is not primary. That's not the the main thing. That's not the center. It's not the heart. Jesus, if you read this passage, does he give her any moral instruction whatsoever? No. What he is offering her is himself. He's offering her relationship. He's saying, what you're thirsting for in them, you're only going to find it in me. Now listen, really important, pause. And just ask yourself, look in the mirror and go, what are the deep insecurities of my soul, of your soul? Do you know what they are? In other words, because if we want to figure out how the medicine works, we've got to understand how it applies to us. Here's what we've seen. Jesus' attitude, the way he diagnoses the problem, it's thirst. What he offers is actually relationship with himself. So fourth and last point, how does it actually work? How does the medicine get inside and heal you? We know something happens because within minutes of engaging her, she drops her water jar, races back into town and says, come see the man who told me everything I have ever done. And I can imagine the town people going, everything? Like, we know a lot of what you've done, and it's bad. And we've been using it to control you, to ostracize you, to shun you. And all of a sudden, this woman, is she has been liberated from her reputation. She doesn't care what anybody thinks. Why? Because there's another opinion that now matters more to her. So how does that work? And how can it work for us? Let me summarize the entire conversation. In verse 15, The woman says, give me this water. And Jesus responds, says, go get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. You've had five guys, and the guy you're with now is not your husband. She says, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Now, I'm going to tell you what she's thinking. She's thinking, crap. I didn't want to go to church. I just wanted water. (laughs) You know, I was just minding my own business. Listen, this is how God works, okay? God comes seeking people. And he will often meet you when you are not looking for him, in the place you least expect it. So the question is, how do you respond when Jesus does start knocking on that door? And how do you argue with somebody like Jesus anyway? You know, this is, it's like, you're sitting here going, okay, this guy reads me like a book. (laughs) What am I going to say to him? He's, you know, I don't know if she knows, she doesn't know he's God yet. But she realizes she's in over her head. This guy has like a, you know, he's very spiritual. She's very simple. What I love here is that she actually engages. And she starts 
in some ways kind of arguing, there's a lot of talk in verses 20 to, four, 20 to 24 about worship. And Jesus does most of the talking, but here's the gist of it. Jesus says that you know what really matters more, even than our sexual behavior? It's our worship. And I think part of the reason is our sexual behavior fleck, reflects the things that we worship. Okay? Jesus talks about worship. He says what God wants most is true worshipers. Guys, this ought to scare all of us a little bit. God wants our hearts. Okay? But here's the cool thing. He's seeking them out. He says God is seeking out people to be true worshipers. Now, down in verse 25, this is what I love the woman. She can't argue with him. How do you argue with Jesus? Not going to work. Losing battle. But she's got this great line down in verse 25. She says, listen, when Messiah comes, he'll clear everything up. Mustard seed of faith in the Messiah. And Jesus goes, exactly. That's what I'm looking for. Hope in the Messiah. And then he goes, I who speak to you am he. All right? Now, what's happening? This woman has nothing to commend herself to God. She knows it. But she has a mustard seed of faith. And all of a sudden, the Messiah is here, and he knows her deepest thoughts. He knows every. He knows that she's been married five times. Like, she goes, oh, crap. He knows everything about me. But he's not rejecting her. He's engaging her. And she realizes he sees my sin, but he's not looking for goodness. He's looking for need, and he's looking for faith. And here's what will make the gospel medicine to your soul. Two things. First, when you see that Jesus is interested in you, a person, not just interested in people in general, but you. This woman meets Jesus, and she starts to do the math and go, this guy, like, wants to talk to me. He knows everything about me, and he's not pulling back. He, he knows me right where I am. All her life has been dominated by thirst. Maybe it's for sex. Maybe it's for relationship. Maybe it's for security. I think she's saying, in my opinion, that she's been looking for a man who will always love her, never leave her, never let her down. And her thirst has caused her to do all sorts of things that she knows she probably shouldn't do. It's put her in bondage to her desires and has put her in bondage to the disapproval of others. And all of a sudden she meets Jesus and he quenches her thirst because he loves her as she is. He sees her to the core. That is what grace is. He says, I'm willing to be in relationship with you. And that frees her from the opinions of others because his opinion matters more. That's the essence of Christianity. A relationship with a real person real love, it will quench and satisfy you. But it's got to become real. So here's a question. Just think about this. How is your relationship with God? Is there much of a relationship? Or are you just going through the motions? Okay? First thing that's got to happen, you've got to see Jesus interested in you personally. The relationship has to start. But here's what will make the relationship sing. It's when you see what it cost Jesus to be in relationship with you. Listen, a lot of people think, hey, it's just kind of God's job 
to love us. That's what God does. I specialize in sinning. God specializes in forgiving. Works really well together. Okay, it's God's job to love me. But here's the thing. If it's somebody's job to love you, that love will never move you. Because it's just his job. He's just doing his job. All right? But you look up at verse 10, and Jesus says, If you knew the gift of God, you'd be asking me. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you'd be asking me for a drink. Listen, if God was doing his job, it wouldn't be a gift. Jesus, Jesus actually gave something, and it cost him. It was a free gift, but it was costly. It costs Jesus something to meet people like her. Think about what it says in the text. Jesus gave up his schedule. He rerouted his journey. He became tired and weary so that he could meet her. Jesus gave up his comfort. He becomes thirsty because he wants to satisfy her thirst. He gives up his reputation. People, I guarantee you, are going to talk about him badly because of this encounter. We know that they did. He gives up his access to the temple. He becomes ceremonially unclean. All of these things cost Jesus something. Not a ton, but it was real. And I think this woman would have looked back on this encounter the rest of her life as she follows Jesus. We know that she became a follower. And she would have looked back and said, man, that means something that he cared about me. And was, it was costly, and he did it because he loved me. I can follow him. I can obey him. I can, I can start to see my life renovated by him. Now listen, you go, what about us? Jesus has never met me at a well. Jesus probably never met you at a well. What do we have? She had this encounter. What about us? We actually have something better. We have a better encounter. Because Jesus actually took another journey, a much bigger one, not just down to Samaria, but down from heaven to earth, to the cross, to his death. That's a journey. And he did it for us. John chapter 10, verse 3 says, The good shepherd, Jesus talking, calls his sheep by name. He knows them. He knows you. Every single person in here, he knows your name. And he came because he knows your name. He underwent a great journey. That journey was so hard that he didn't just get weary and stumble and fall. He actually went all the way to the cross and died. That journey was so significant. Do you remember what he says on the cross? I thirst. Same thing he says here. But he's not just thirsting for water. He's thirsting to rescue thirsty people like you and me. He knows us. Jesus loses his reputation way more on the cross. He's naked, he's taunted, and he does it for us. On the cross, Jesus becomes the ultimate outcast so that we can become sons and daughters of the great king. Jesus is cut off from the true temple so that we might be drawn in. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for him, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You want to talk about cost. The gospel says that Jesus came to pay the price to bear our sin. Everything that is wrong with us, 
everything that is broken about us. Jesus came and he knew us by name. It wasn't just a generic salvation. When that starts to become real to you, it will move you the way it moved this woman. This woman, a little bit of cost, moves her greatly. Imagine what it'll do for us when we see the great cost to Jesus. Jesus had to die, but he was glad to. And when that becomes real to you, it'll start to satisfy your thirst and make it much, much easier to follow him. That's what the gospel is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your help to see these things. We need your spirit to move, to press in, to show us how you work and that you love us. Would you please be with us? In your name we pray.